Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. You're listening to the Fish Untamed Podcast, your home for fly fishing the backcountry. This is episode 57 with Hal Herring on hunting, fishing, and public lands. If you just want to start, I'd love to hear how you got your start in the outdoors. I know it's been something that's been a part of your life for a while, but what, what got you started in the first place? Well, I was lucky that um, my, my father had stopped hunting. He was older. He didn't hunt that much, um, but they my parents facilitated me in the outdoors for sure. Like um, I, my mother would give me a ride, for instance, to Gunnersville Dam in Alabama. This is all around. This is near Huntsville, Alabama, Madison and Jackson County. Um, my mother used to drop me off at Wheeler Dam on the Tennessee River. And she would go antiquing or do whatever and not come back for like eight hours. Um, and so that was kind of an education in how to, like, if, if you're not catching X, how do you catch Y? Um, like saying in shad and using them as live bait and stuff. Um, and so I was always obsessed with hunting and fishing as, as far back as I can remember. And I, I started really hunting I was fishing when I was a little tiny child, but I, I really started hunting about nine years old. Um, and I had a, you know, I got, I think for my ninth Christmas, I got a single shot 20 gauge uh, Stevens. And um, then we were lucky enough, we, we lived out in the country from age 11 until the time I left home in my 20s. So it was, um, I don't know, man, I, I can't remember a time when it wasn't the primary, really the primary thing. Now, if your parents weren't uh, actively participating in it as much, did it was it just something that you felt like you were born with that you were kind of pushing to be able to go and do that on your own? I think so, and I I didn't have to push much. I was uh, 
like like I said, they gave me. I can remember I had a um, I had a uh, kind of top of the line. I had an eagle claw fly rod when I was nine with the with the automatic um, you know, the automatic reel. And uh, I I wasn't a great fly fisherman. I just I fished whatever. I fished hand lines. I fished like trot lines, limb lines, um, game poles, uh, bow and arrows. I mean, it was just like I don't know where it came from. Just a desire to to be out there and, and yeah yeah and looking for stuff and uh then i mean i re- i mean it was partially we were big readers in my family and i i remember the first book i ever read was like this biography of james fenimore cooper and he was like uh as a child he was like on some kind of like like out in the wilderness you know navigating and stuff and i was obsessed with i read field and stream sports of field outdoor life you know all the stuff I ended up writing, although I read more like adventure stories than anything else, you know. So did you know from a young age that you wanted to pick up a writing career? No, but I didn't at all. Um, but my mother encouraged me to do that. Um, and uh, that sort of took, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what, when did that kind of take over? When did you decide that that's what you wanted to do? Um, so I was writing... When I, I, for a long time, I wrote, I wrote fiction and I published fiction. I, I won a contest, short story contest judged by one of my heroes, which is Peter Mathieson when I was in my twenties. Um, and Mathieson, of course, was a, he wrote the snow leopard and he wrote wildlife in America. Um, let me think of all the, it, it play in the fields. Of the Lord was a huge book for me when I was in high school. It's about the Amazon. Um, but I was able to, um, Okay, so I was working in the woods. I was I had published fiction and never made a dime, you know, at it. And uh, I ran across some stories there about game farming that were going on right where I lived in Montana by this time. And I wrote a couple of versions of that story. This was captive trophy shooting stuff. And um, I ended up pitching one to Field and Stream, just right what they used to call over the transom, which means unsolicited. And um, they took it. And I, I, uh, I followed that story for some years and I, it, it, it carried me into chronic wasting disease. This was all happening at the same time. This was around two, 1999, 98. And, um, I got an energy story up near where I live now on the Blackfeet reservation. Um, and, uh, I, I was, the thing was, is I, I, when I worked in the woods as a forestry contractor, most of the time we were broke. And, uh, so to get, 750 bucks, $1,500, at one time for a story was like, you're like, wow, I make more money doing this and I do thinning timber or planting or working, not more than working trails, but um, it was just like, it it seemed to work, you know? Now, how did you get connected with the uh, game farming? Not connected with them, but how did you become aware of this through your job? They they established a, a place that's gone now called the Big Velvet elk ranch right south of where i lived in the bitterroot valley and um i was a I, I did control burns back then on crews you know national forest contracts and um i did trails i did fire lines all the regular wood what, what we call in montana woods work you know and uh so i knew a lot of people and and they were all the neighbors to this ranch and some of them went to work on it and and the stories i was getting about the 
where you pay all this money and you drive up. And if, if the guy wanted it to be like a real hunt, the, the guy would drive him around a flatbed and pretend like he was looking for elk. And then they would just drive down there and, you know, kill one when, when the guy got tired. Um, and, uh, I was really into elk hunting. I was young and I thought, you know, this is the craziest thing ever was how I, I felt. I said, I said, people are really going to be interested in this. I'm interested in this. What kind of people do this? you know and so um i started following that i published that in high country news actually um which is a paonia colorado newspaper that i worked for forever um as a as a freelancer and they took a chance on me too it was a very controversial story yeah i can imagine was it as controversial back then as it would be today absolutely okay it was, i it was kind of surprised fire <laughs> you know um this was before chronic wasting disease which appeared in the game farm in Phillipsburg, Montana, um, shortly thereafter this. And uh, it's so, yeah, I mean, and I mean, there's so much, it was, and I got to tell you, like, I know it's a, a uh, for some people, they would say it's a terrible thing to, you know, to kill these elk like that. It's kind of degrading or whatever, right? But um, uh, I was also kind of conservative in that I, I bought the argument that this is your property, your private property. And if I want to, hire if somebody wants to pay me to come shoot my goats or whatever you know there's an argument there right like it's your right to sell off you know the resources that you have on your land if you want to yeah and 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 stock it with a bunch of pigs and have people chase them around with dogs you know i mean it's like it might be cruel or whatever but that's in the eye of the beholder so um but what happened there was that they were using these game proof fences obviously to keep the elk in and one of those fences blocked there's a law that says you can't have wild game inside those fences, right? The game belongs to the people. You can't you can't enclose wild game. So I knew these kids that I rock climb with. They were they're still great friends of mine, much younger than me. And they got hired to run through this ranch and scatter all the wild mule deer out. And of course, we were all rock climbing up in Kootenai Canyon that time in Stevensville, Montana. And they said, "You wouldn't believe what we just come off of." You know, these kids are like 15. I'm, and I'm 20, 30, maybe. And uh, they said, you wouldn't believe this thing we're all doing. And I said, tell me about it. And they said, we're running around that elk ranch chasing mule deer out and before they finish this fence. And so I, I was like, wow, that's pretty interesting. You know, so I called the fish and game and asked them what was going on with that. They, they told me. And then the fence blocked a mule deer migration corridor there. And it pushed all these mule deer out onto Highway 93 where they were just getting massacred, you know. And I thought, well, you may have a private property right to shoot domestic animals on your on your ranch, but this thing has so many other implications. Right. And that's what I just got hooked on it. I, I followed that story for years. I followed it to the Atlantic Monthly and the Economist. And, and what became of it? Montana passed a ballot initiative. I'm and I, I'll get the number wrong if I try to say it. That uh, basically banned captive trophy shooting in Montana. And um, so that kind of, we dodged that bullet that like Utah and some other states have are still struggling with in Idaho um, with captive shooting. Okay. Now, uh, backing up a little bit, what, what brought you from Alabama out to Montana? Well, a couple of things. One, um, I came out here, I was writing, and uh, I came out to Yellow Bay, on Flathead Lake to go to a writer's conference in like 1988, I think. And I was, Tom McGuane was teaching there. And Tom McGuane's one of my heroes in, in art and literature and, and fishing and hunting. 
Um, and so I took the train from Memphis, which sounds like a song, and it was a very romantic deal. It was really cool. And I got up to Chicago and then took the Highline train across Haver. I got out in Haver. I remember Montana and walking around and I was like, wow. It, I mean, it, just, it blew my mind. I'd never, you know, I'd never been in the prairie really. And um, so uh, I, the Yellowstone was on fire that year. And there were all these people on the train that were going, they were firefighting and they were tree planters, right? With a hoedad, a, a hand tree planters. And I was a tree planter. I even had a tree planting company in South Alabama, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, working for the paper company. And this guy said, hey, man, you can make the big bucks out here swinging that hoedad planting trees in the Rocky Mountains. And so I went back home to Alabama and I thought about that for about a month. And then I started packing up and uh, my girlfriend and I, my wife now, has been my wife ever since, um, we drove out here and we picked up jobs. I got a job managing a ranch off a of hay. I was on a hay crew and I got a job managing a ranch in a Bitterroot. Um, and that's it. I was just like, it were everything we, it's like, it, we didn't require much, right? I mean, we weren't looking for the, you ever seen that movie Lost in America? No. Where he, he, they take off to see America, him and his wife, and he's looking, he's a stockbroker or something. And they get, they broke, she loses all their money in a poker game. And uh, he, he gets a job as like a crossing guard for a, a elementary school. And he asked the lady who's running the unemployment place, he said, she said, uh, what's your previous salary? You know, and he has some kind of huge figure. And she said, Oh, I don't think we have any of those jobs. And, they, <laughs> and uh, so we weren't, we weren't looking to, you know, to strike it rich. Um, and we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least not monetarily, I'm sure, but right, maybe in other ways. <laughs> maybe. Um, but uh, it, it just really seemed like a lot of stuff we did work. Uh-huh. Things fell into place. Mm-hmm. They did. Um, and it, and uh, I was, the first year I was legal, I was hunting the Bitterroots, you know, uh, the first year I had residency. And that was really long ago. I mean, I, we're talking about, th I think, 30, more than 30 years ago. And and one of the things I've written about, too, is uh, it, it wasn't, I never left Alabama because I didn't like it. Like, I love Alabama to this day. Um, it did get a little crowded on us where I was, where I grew up. Um, but the fishing in Alabama and the, and, and to some, it's the hunting, if you have access to better private land, but I never left there cause I didn't like it. I just, I think I found in the West, like, uh, what I had loved as a child, but 20, 50, hundred times over, you know? And that's actually something I wanted to ask you about, um, being probably the first person I've talked to from the Southeast, excluding maybe Florida, which seems it's Florida and Georgia, which are kind of their own thing. Like from your area of the South, you're the first person I've talked to, but what's the, what's the culture like down there, um, with fishing in general, but specifically with fly fishing, because it's not some place that comes to mind when I typically think of a, a fly fishing, you know, area of the country, you know, I think of the West, I think of the Northeast a little bit and like the saltwater, but I'm sure there's a lot of opportunities down there. So like, what, what is that culture like? That's a good question. That, well, that culture has been, has been built since I left. And um, there is a, a, a big fly fishing culture in Alabama, particularly now for um, like spotted bass and red eye bass, um, all these these strange bass species that live in like these. Alabama has it. it of course, it has the most. I, mean, I, I could wax on and on. I, I'm a big E.O. Wilson fan, the, the guy who is the, the ant guy who wrote all the books. He's an evolutionary biologist from Alabama. 
And um, Alabama has this thing that goes across the middle of it called the fall line. And all the rivers go from like the Cumberland Plateau and, and all those mountains that you that continue on into North Georgia and then up into Tennessee. And then all of those spill off of this fall line. And then they, they go through the Piedmont heading for the Gulf of Mexico, right? Or heading for the Alabama River, Tensaw River, Tensaw Delta, which is America's Amazon, they call it. It's like one of the most diverse places in the world. But the, the, the difference is there's all these rocky, beautiful, clear rivers in Alabama above the fall line. And they have all these unique, like every kind of unique fish in there that you can imagine. And so there is a lot of opportunity for like a, a two-weight or a three-weight fly rod. Um, and there's not any trout, no native trout, you know. What do you but have all, introduced? There's some rainbows under the dams and people do fish those. And there's some rainbows in this place called Nakaluka Falls, which is like a one of these rivers I'm talking about. It looks like a trout river, you know, it's just too hot to sustain them. But um, there were trout and I did catch them and I wandered around and, and I would also, when I got a driver's license, you know, your life is just exponentially greater. I mean, I mean, the world nothing, opens up. It does. I mean, there's nothing like I, I, I talk to kids who are 14 or 15 and I'm just like always just like, hold on, you'll, you know, make the best of it. You'll get there because if you're a real out, out, outdoors person, you know, it's like a driver's license is, is like the key to heaven. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and I made the use of that. I was, I was all over North Alabama and Tennessee. Um, the Elk River is a tailwater fishery in Southern Tennessee, that is really important to me. I, I just, I just fished it every chance I got. Wade fished it, walked it. I didn't fly fish it. I didn't, I didn't really know how to fly fish that, like that at the time, so, but I caught a lot of trout in the elk and I had a lot of adventures on that. And that was like, you know, 40 minutes from my house. Now what, what fish are native there? When you're talking about this, um, I don't remember what the uh, region you mentioned was, but you said it was the, the American Amazon, just a really biologically rich place. What, what uh, species of fish do you have? Well, there's, there's large mouse, of course, um, large mouth bass. There's, um, and this, this is down that tensaw country is more like tropical, but it's, um, there's, uh, there's chain pickerel in some of the creeks. That's always really, really kind of exotic. Um, but, the America's Amazon stuff, it, they have, there's, there's a, there's a Gulf walleye that's still alive, barely there. And, um, that, that, that lives in these weird rivers. It's a, it's an actual walleye. It's native to Alabama. Um, how does it differ from a typical walleye? It's a completely different species. I mean, a completely different, like, uh, subspecies. Like, like different forms of cutthroat almost, but in, in the yeah. walleye world. Okay. I've never heard there's of that. Some of those in Southern Mississippi as well, like in the Pascagoula river. Um, I've never caught one, but I'd like to. Are they are they uh, legal to target if they're if they're super no. rare? Okay. Yeah, I don't I don't know what there's a limit on them or what. I mean, they're being studied right now, um, and and um, I'm not sure what the regulations are on them. I think you could spend a lot of time targeting them and not find one. But you know, like like the I don't know. It, it's hard to talk about. Like some of the history, if you looked at that place pre Euro. Um, I mean, we had the falls of the Coosa over in East Alabama that were, you could hear them for like seven miles. And there were Indian Native American fish weirs there that filled up with fish every day, enough for a week. Um, we dammed all that up, of course, and got rid of it. But um, the, the 
in the history there, like the Black Warrior that I used to fish when I was in college at Tuscaloosa, that used to you used to could walk across that. And there were like it was rocks and 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 there were beds of, of freshwater mussels there that went for miles that the river would make this crazy noise going through. If you if you read the old accounts, I mean, you know, it's kind of a like paradise. Just a different world. As a kid, did you ever fantasize about if you had been born a little earlier, being able to experience uh, this I, before? I still do. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> That's never gone away. I'm uh I was lost in that, you know, and I tried to live that as much as I possibly could. Um, yeah, I think that's something that's common across a lot of people, even, you know, across the country. Just yep. you hear these stories and you just think, you know, what if I could have been there during that time? You know, you just hear the stories that just don't sound real. Like, you know, in some place people could walk across the salmon or just yep. stories like that where you just can't even picture it because there's nothing even compare it to these days. No, and, and, it, and it was it was all there. I mean... Um, what part of the country are you in right now? I'm in Colorado currently. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I was thinking of the bison in Colorado, like the salmon runs. And then, um, I've been reading these weird books lately set in the, on the Ohio river. Um, it's a guy named Alan Eckhart. He wrote a book called the frontiersman. And they talk about that when they're, they're fighting with the Shawnee and, uh, they burn these deer hides that, contain 100 pounds of clear rendered bear fat. And there's like 20 of them. Um, in addition to these panniers that go on that, they didn't have many horses, right? This is really early, but panniers that are packed with bison, smoked bison meat that comes from there. They're the bison herds of Kentucky. Um, and it kind of blows your mind. I mean, you can't, I'm not sure what progress is, but I don't think what we got is is progress from right. That. And I feel like there's a lot of species today that you find out. You know, you have an idea in your mind of where these animals are found. Uh, like the clear example today, I feel like is elk. You know, you know where elk are found, and then you find out that elk. I mean, I don't know how many states they were in, but it was like across the country. Um, yep. And, you know, the fish have obviously changed so much just because, you know, you go out today and any given river has brown and rainbow trout. And that, you know, wasn't a thing, uh, right. or at least for most of the country, but just how different things must have been so long ago. Yeah. yeah. And and some of that I don't, I mean, I don't object to it. I, I love catching brown trout, you know, I mean, I and and I love shooting pheasants. Um, so I there's some of it. I, it's OK. And I mean, some of it, well, you, what would you do about it? Right. <laughs> might as well go. You might as well float that hopper over that big brown trout, you know. So I assume that you probably enjoy reading a lot about this, being a voracious reader and kind of not living in the past in a bad way, but just kind of fantasizing about that time. Um, I assume you probably plow through books that kind of take you back to a different place in time. I, yeah, I have. Yeah, all my life, really. Um, but uh, I've been on this on this book project. I'm on the public lands. I've been immersed in. Um, for really almost a year and just the history of public lands and how we got the United States, for instance, I started out with early and, um, and, and in doing that, like I was reading about the Creek nation in Alabama and what they're called the Muscogee people, you know, and when they were finally, they were militarily defeated at the battle of Horseshoe Bend by Jackson and Cherokee troops. And um, in reading that history, that's where we got like 25 million acres of land, right? They, they had to give it up because because they, they, lost, they lost the war. Um, in reading that, there's all of these chronicles and accounts of what, what it was like then and what people were eating and what they lived on and, and the people traveling in the Creek cities. I mean, the Creek Nation was a very advanced bunch of folks with their own towns and 
you know, like fish weirs and hunting parties. And I mean, they, they, it, it was very advanced. We went to war with people who are already, they were, they'd been doing it for a long time. They knew what they, they were living in Alabama for a long time without damming up the Coosa River. Uh, which i much appreciate um but that's that's part of my fascination this current obsession i have with how things were it comes from this immersion in all this history and these kind of tangential accounts of all of what people were doing you know there's a (laughs) i could go on this for a long time there's a story of audubon john james audubon uh, in in ohio and they go up some river i think it's the canal and they meet and I'm not sure what this tribe was, but they stay with them. There's not, there's not any fighting or nothing. Everybody's getting along and they're hunting swans. They call them like for, for winter larder and they're hunting bear and they're in this, it's, they call it a wild pecan grove, which I don't really know if there's such a thing as wild pecan groves in, in Southern Ohio, but that all of the animals have come there to eat these nuts, whether they're hickory nuts or acorns or whatever. And so this Indians have set up, they've set up a, a seasonal village there every year and they, they hunt swans and they catch, they kill bears for the, for the oil and the meat and the, and the fat and um, Audubon and them, they, they go hunting and they hunt like, all, they don't get anything in the morning, but in the afternoon they, they, you know, kill whatever, not limits. There weren't limits obviously because we got rid of all of them, but um, it's an, it sounds like paradise. Just flush with game and flush with game. Par- um, par- uh, there were parakeet, the Carolina parakeets. Oh, the, I have were, heard the Carolina of, of the Carolina parakeet before. Yeah. And then passenger pigeons by the, you know, millions. So now, did it mention anything about the, the fishing at that time? Like what they were finding in the rivers? They do. They do talk about catching catfish and, um, I think drum. But I think it's hard. I think they had to use, I don't think they had hooks like, like black. You'd have to build a hook at a blacksmith shop. Like, so like, do you know what they were using? I don't know. That's a great question. I think they used nets. And then the, the natives had fish, they had weirs built of rocks that channeled that, that went with the current, pushed the fish, kind of like what they use in Alaska now as a fish wheel. Okay. Yeah. 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 But these were made out of rocks and some of them were a thousand years old. You know, I mean, it was pretty, pretty handy. Yeah. It is just cool to like think back on all that too, though. Just like how, you know, how things have changed. If you think about today's like sport fishing culture, which obviously like most of us kind of feel uh, attached to in some way and just how that has, I mean, it's not necessarily directly developed from something like the fish weirs, but just the different ways that through the course of history, people have all been kind of participating in the same thing, but for different reasons and via different methods. And I don't think there's any doubt that everybody was having a blast hunting, <laughs> hunting and fishing back in the, in the uh, like 1600s, you know? Well, yeah, but I, I wonder if there's a different, different mentality about it. If, if your life depends on that, you know, obviously those of us who hunt and fish, a lot of us eat what we get, but you know, if, if we don't, we can go to the grocery store and buy something. And I wonder if there's a bit of a different mentality, if that might be your life. I would love to know. And, um, and I'm assuming that like, um, where I, I live on the prairie now, right out of West of Great Falls, Montana and life before the horse here, like before 1700 or whatever. Um, I mean, I'd be pretty hard, pretty different if you're on foot your own foot on this vast prairie and, and antelope and, and, or pronghorn and bison are your thing. Um, not getting one 
Like me and you talk about fishing for Gulf walleye and not getting one, you know? Right. Oh, darn. One's a little different. The kids are all back at the teepee. But, but like you said, I agree that I can't imagine that there are people who weren't enjoying it in some sort of recreational way back then. You know, even if it is for your livelihood, you know, at some, at some point during the year, you probably are going to be flush with food. You know, it's, yeah. I'm sure it's a cyclical thing that sometimes yeah. you're, you're flush with food and sometimes you're starving. But I imagine during those times where you've got a lot of food that, you know, it feels like almost a human experience to have a little bit of fun while you're out there. I think so. There's a um, there's a pronghorn jump. You know, everybody talks about bison jumps or buffalo jumps, or they call them pishkin. And um, there's a pronghorn jump down in the Madison River that is right next to this hot springs complex. It's on private land now, um, but I guarantee that when they dumped like 50 pronghorn over that thing and everybody had them all cut up and sitting in the hot springs, it was a hell of a good time. Being- <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know? But yeah, I think I think I think people are people all the way back. I think they I think loving and hunting and fishing is part of it comes from that, you know. The 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 predatory nature of going after say like like one of like like fly fishing with a dry fly or say fly fishing for largemouth bass, you know, with a popper. I don't think that the the drive to do that is any different than the drive of people three thousand years ago, you know crouching with a bow and waiting for say a big drum to come by in a rocky creek in alabama you know i think i think they're having a good time just like we are now well and there's also something i mean even if even if the reason you're excited is that you're getting dinner that night i mean having a fish on the line is it's fun i mean you can't you can't deny it i mean you might have a little bit more terror going on if you know that this if this fish gets away there's higher stakes but at the end of the day it's fun. I, it's fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure of it, man. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure of it. And I think the, I think that's where the drive comes. Is, I think it's survival that has in in the in the presence of more luxury has kind of transmogrified into what we call sport. Well, it makes you wonder. Like, I mean, where else would that have come from? I mean, the exactly. idea of of catch and release fishing. In, if there's not some sort of innate drive to get that fish into your net, I, I almost feel like that's just taking that instinct of I need dinner and turning it into, you know, I don't actually need dinner tonight, but there's still something in me that just draws me to this. I wonder if there's anyone who's kind of looked into the um, metamorphosis from the drive to just get food and how that has kind of evolved into uh, the traditions and uh, just kind of the culture around hunting and fishing today, where it's just a, a strong part of people's lives. Um, regardless of how much food. Yeah, I was thinking about that quote from, I don't know if it was Chief Seattle or whoever, but he said, when the bison are gone and so-and-so is gone, we'll hunt mice because we're hunters and, and that's what we do. You know, and that's who we are. Um, so I, I don't know if anybody ever has. I, I do. I, um, I go for both. Like, I, I love to, I mean, I love to hunt elk. I mean, I think that's like one of the great pursuits in my life, you know. But um, I hadn't killed a bull and. I don't know, 16 years, maybe I just shoot, you know, I kill, kill a cow if I can get it a cow tag and it's all meat hunting and it's just, it's just meat hunting all the time. White-tailed deers too. It's just like, it's, we get as many tags as we can get and we fill them and it's, it's just as much wild. I mean, it's not tracking down some giant mule deer and just you and him out in the woods for a whole season or whatever, or, or like people in the South, they hunt those giant white tails out of a stand and they just, they just gonna hit, shoot one, you know, that one white tail. It's not like that. This is meat ca- meat catching, you know. But now, for fishing, do you tend to uh, keep a lot of what you catch, or is it mostly catch and release for you? 
for for trout if they're they're these stalkers in these lakes around here um that in this in the spring and winter like we were talking about ice fishing um i will keep those fish and smoke them but i don't really keep fish out of small creeks at all and i don't keep fish out of most of the rivers um but i do go i make these these pilgrimages to the big missouri river below the trout fishing part and i'll catfish for i probably do that 10 days a year and we keep all of those we'll catch smallmouth catfish um walleye if we can get them um anything even keep drum and then we eat that's what we eat most trout i let go okay is that is that from a i don't know some sort of inner spiritual uh connection to trout and something like that or is it just a practical you know there's cutthroat trout native cutthroat trout there that you don't want to mess up like what, what's the motivation behind that okay so with cutthroats it's definitely i don't want to kill them okay i don't think they're doing that well like like there's a lot more people than there are cutthroats right um and so uh with brown trout uh i don't really like them on the table i can i'll eat them fried um, but I don't really like them. And so, and I also find them to be like kind of this like incredibly beautiful creature that are, um, there's things that are like too pretty to kill, I guess you'd say, but there's things that are so dramatic that they just don't really belong in the, in the food category to me. Right. <laughs> um, and then, but these big, these big rainbows that are stopped, they go well in the smoker and like in the winter ice fishing, I'll keep. I'll keep a limit of those and I'll smoke them. We put them on salads. We make stuff out of them, like fish cakes out of them. Um, but no, and, and like on that Missouri trout fishing river, I've never kept a fish like on the, in the Craig Montana section of the Missouri. I've never kept one out of there. Okay. Now what about, what about whitefish? Do you ever keep any whitefish? I love whitefish. Yeah. I figured you might yeah. say that. <laughs> yeah. When I lived in the Bitterroot, um, we, I would go, I wouldn't say we, nobody else was that interested in it, but I would go white fishing in the winter like in the open water uh-huh. with a maggot and you, 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 if there's a technique to it and then they go in the smoker as well. Yeah. I haven't actually eaten a white fish. I've been planning to go out and try to keep a couple because I, I've been hearing more and more that you can smoke them and make some pretty good, uh, just like smoked white fish or like dips and things like that. And I'm like, I should go out there and, and keep a couple for that. I, I think so. Um, they're definitely better in the winter though. Um, for catching or eating or both. Eating okay. In, in really cold water. They're, they're just, and I, I don't know if this is something I just made up, but uh, they're harder and they stay together better and they just, they're just better in the winter. Like mushy in the summer? Yep. Okay. They are. And so is everything. I mean, so are all the Missouri river fish that I catch like down there catfish and stuff, but I, I fry them and I don't really matter. But those white fish were better in the winter. Yeah. I've heard people describe certain uh, species as mushy, like certain species of trout as mushy and uh, species of trout that I've eaten many times and would never think of the word mushy. And I, right. I've come to decide that it must just come down to the location you catch them, the size and the season, because uh, I've never noticed a consistent, um, you know, mushy fish. Mushy fish. Right. And also how people handled them. Like, right. like that's like saying they were pronghorn. You know, I remember when I was younger, people go, I don't eat pronghorn. I don't eat antelope. And I was like, well, antelope's one of my favorite things on earth to eat. And I, I don't know where these people got a bad antelope, you know. But well, I, I think I a lot of antelope that, come from hot prairies that might get yeah. driven around in the back of a pickup truck for a couple hours. <laughs> that's it. I think that's it. Um, and, I, and you know, once bitten, twice shy, if, unless you're really hungry, right? You know, and that's the other thing is like it depends on how hungry you are. Yeah. 
Right. <laughs> but like you even mentioned, though, I mean, just a different preparation can kind of save something, too. If You know, maybe you do get a fish that stays out too long and then you decide to deep fry it instead of, uh, you know, baking it in butter. You know, there's just different yeah. different things you can do to kind of fix it if you've messed up a little bit. Yeah. Do you do any warm water fishing? Uh, I do a little bit in Colorado. I did a lot growing up in Pennsylvania and I still do when I go back to Pennsylvania. But out here, um, the warm water fishing in in the Denver area is a lot of reservoirs with a lot of motorboats and stuff like that and or just small city ponds and yeah. uh, I'm more inclined to go up in the mountains and and fish up there right well you got the some of the best mountains in the world too yeah yeah I have nothing against warm water fishing at all it just I, I just happen to be located in a place where the cold water fishing just far surpasses it yeah you bet and that's yeah. true here too I, I just I think I just I do it in part just because I'm I'm a hooked on it since a child you know I, I have to go throw that big catfish rig down in that hole with the big night crawler to see what's down there. And I just, you know, and trout fishing, as much as I love fly fishing for trout, um, it doesn't do the, it, it's, it's two different, two different joys, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. I saw on your website that you, you know, you grew up a pretty well-rounded outdoors kid, you know, hunting, fishing. As I even said, like picking ginseng. Um, yep. And so I imagine, like, even I asked about the, the fly fishing culture in the South before, but um, what what's the rest of the fishing culture like? Like, what do people run for fish? What is the the main thing? If you show up down there, what are you going to see people doing? Um, there's a, there's different different cultures there, and um, I was going to say uh, that I'm gonna I want to look I want to find this little book um, that Matt Roberts wrote on on fly fishing for uh, these shoal bass, red eye bass. Um, but the culture is there. So there's a there's a very utilitarian culture of people with like a Zebco 202 and a bobber and like like put as many brim bluegill into a cooler as you can legally pick up and carry, you know. So there's that that part. And um, there's um, and then there's like the tournament bass fishing. Right. And there's like serious largemouth bass anglers. And um, it's just a. Uh, it's very, and then there's like, there's, there's the legions of catfish and, you know, catfishermen. And then some of these people are generalists as well. Like you'll, you'll, but you'll meet like great bass fishermen who are also crappie fishermen, which is, which is a complete pursuit of its own, you know? Um, and I, I, uh, it's hard as man, it's so diverse. You got me really like wishing I was down there. Um, <laughs> So diverse, like, like, like there was, when I was a kid, when I was about leaving there in my twenties, um, people started like drifting live shad under Pickwick Dam for these like eight pound smallmouth to just barrel fish, you know, like they're in all those swarms of shad and stuff. Um, so I got really interested in that. I'd never, I've never successfully done it, but people do it all the time. Now I want to look up that book. Um, but, uh, that the diversity of fish in there is it's just amazing that's kind of the impression i had of it i i mean i've never fished down there but i just get the impression that there's a lot more ways people are going about getting fish out of the water than i would encounter walking down the street here and just asking asking anglers how they how they procure their fish there'd be a handful of answers but i just get the impression that the south has a lot more of those answers yeah and then um i mean there's like 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 poorer people who are really their subsistence fishing is part of their deal like you can go down under the dam at gunnersville and catch like wipers white bass hybrids and i don't know what the limit is but you can catch a lot of them and come home and like eat for you know five days frying fish you can um 
I was obsessed with crappie fishing when I was, before I got a driver's license, I had a lake near my house that, that had a good crappie in April. And you'd go in there with like, it, you could have used a cane pole, but you go in these brush piles and you just drop the minnow down with a single little split shot. And the crappie are all suspended in a certain depth, you know? And when you catch them, you, you can, you could use a slip bobber. It took me a long time to figure that out, but that would suspend that minnow at that level, you know? And so there's, there's a, I mean, all of it is skilled or semi-skilled at least, you know, you can, I mean, there's cat fishermen can just outfish you 20 to one on catfishing just because they know something you don't. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I was, it's, I'm jonesing for some summer Alabama fishing. (laughs) (laughs) Is summer like the main time to fish down there? I would expect it's really hot, but. It's really hot. It's early, early morning and nights, you know, late afternoon. Um, but you can wet wade everything, you know, and, uh, and then top water, it, it cools off a little bit, but, but at, uh, in March, it's really, there's days in March when the weather's stable, when it's really great, you know, it's like waking up. Um, it's not that good in my experience, December, January, or else I don't know where, how to do it. But yeah, March, April, there's a lot of great stuff going on. <laughs> I heard that it was, had been raining so much this year that everything's been blown out like for a long time. Oh, really? It's been wet down there too? Yeah, really wet. Unlike the West. Well, I was going to ask what your weather's been like because the West usually includes us here in Colorado. We're we're usually in that Western fire news headline every summer, but this year we've been getting we've gotten more rain this year already than we did the entirety of last year, um, and we're having a pretty wet year. And we do, we only have a couple fires going, and they're not they're not terrible. We're getting all the smoke from from Oregon and yeah. Northern California. But uh, what what's your weather been like? Are you kind well, of included in that that drought? Well, East of here, yes, um, and it's really it's really severe east of here uh, drought. Um, but we had the same thing y'all got, which is traveling down that Rocky Mountain spine, I guess. Is and it? Yeah, and these weather these weather like tumultuous weather things that are dropping rain. So we're we're in a bubble, and we don't brag about it because like east of here, people are suffering, you know. Right. And so, uh, but yeah, it's been pretty, it's pretty green, it's looking pretty green. Yeah, this is the greenest I've seen it here in years. And it's not the typical, like we've been up in the mountains every weekend for the past month or so now. And normally we're used to an afternoon thunderstorm. And instead it's been like multiple hours of, of rain at a time that just doesn't, oh. or goes, rains into the night, rains down here in the front range. And I'm just like, I'm going to take it as long as it's willing to keep giving yeah. it to us. Right. Didn't, didn't, what was y'all snowplack like? Uh, I don't. I don't know the actual measurement of how the snowpack was because we're just, as skiers, we kind of note it as either a good winter or a bad winter. But half the time, it's just, you know, the place you're skiing is either good or bad. So you have this idea of of whether it's good or bad. So I don't actually know um, statistically whether it was a good or bad winter. Um, it felt like not a great winter. Yeah, us, us too. It wasn't bad, but it was. And then we got, which is hard on our sharp-tailed grouse, um, but we got these May blizzards, really late May blizzards that... um they were super heavy, wet snow, and it really charged up. Like you could just see the, you could see the change. Um, we don't get on. We uh, we probably get nine to twelve inches of rain a year. It's like it's like a, so almost a desert, you know. But but the mountains catch the snow, so it feeds the the water comes down from the mountains. I mean, it's almost like a perfect system, really, as long as you don't put dams on it and suck all the rivers dry. We have a we have a big problem this year. Um, the snowpack was really bad in the Yellowstone. And um, this is a very controversial thing to introduce, I guess, but we're, we're having a real bad problem with dewatering and losing, losing the better fisheries 
in the state of Montana. It just, yeah, I think I heard that they closed a bunch of rivers recently. Is that they yeah. are, like just straight up closed them? Closed them, and then they were on hoot owl hours really early. Hoot owl hours means you can only fish from like daybreak to twelve or two o'clock, and that's because the temperatures get too hot, you know, afterwards. But um, and people want to talk about climate change, and that's fine. It's true, um, all that. But we just have a we have a ter- serious dewatering problem from irrigation. I mean, you just can't you just can't dewater all the creeks and then have fish. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it not work that way, you know. Um, no, so what? What are the guides doing? Do you know what, like, how the outfitters are handling these closures? Because I assume they, that affects a huge part of their business. They look for rivers that aren't closed, and then they they just fish early, and they're off at two. Okay, I I wasn't sure maybe because I heard maybe two days ago that some of the rivers were just closed entirely to recreational there fishing, are, and then they go moving around, and then that push pressure on fish, other fish that probably can't take it. It's um, it's tough, man. I mean, it's it's a it's a problem that needs addressing, and I don't know how you solve it so much, but it needs somebody needs to. We need to we needed to have been talking about it twenty five years ago, right? Which we can't go back and do. So no, and Trout Unlimited did did some heroes work down on the Big Hole River, um, trying to put some extra get some work with ranchers and ranches that had irrigated hay fields to get some more water in the river. Um, and that, that was good. Um, and we need more and more. We're going to have to, I mean, the Gallatin, the Jefferson, the Madison, they're all just like, they're super low. Yeah. The Madison was what I heard about. Yeah. And of course, I mean, for people in America, right. Those are the, those are the three, that's the three water, three forks, right. Three forks, Montana. Well, that's the three forks of the Missouri, man. That's the biggest, like the, the second biggest river in the United States. Right. So it's like, it's not really a local trout fisherman's problem. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um this is this is like the mighty mo right this is the big missouri river that goes all the way to the mississippi um so it it uh it's interesting those ecological like like how everything is connected right um but you're not going to have the same fishery unless we figure out this some in-stream flows is what we need you need a minimum in-stream flow that protects other aspects of the economy and that encourages people to use water in a more judicious and effective way. Um, and you kind of got to go all the way back to frontier times to when all this water started getting allocated to, to do that. It's not going to be easy. Nobody wants to touch it. Yeah. And especially these rivers that go through multiple states, it's not as easy as one state making a decision. I mean, right. uh, that's obviously a big thing on the Colorado too. You know, we have water here that doesn't make it to the, to the ocean. Um, right. I'm not going to blame a single state, but, you know, especially with a river running through the desert where people are trying to live and, you know, they're using a lot more water than someone who gets a lot of rain might. Yeah. Um, I think there's 40 million people that are on the Colorado river one way or another, dependent upon it, but you could pray, pray for rain. But yeah, I think, I think that's, a, I mean, that's the future, right? That's Phoenix and Vegas. And, I mean, it's going to have to get figured out at some point, but it's not going to be an easy, an easy route to, to do that. There's no, yeah, there's no easy fix. Um, I, I had, uh, I think you could do it locally though. You could get minimum in-stream flow laws and say that that river is is survives and thrives at X number of CFS cubic feet per second, and that's what needs to stay in there. And everybody who has a water right can work with that too. But that but that's your baseline. Baseline is the river has to survive because other things depend on it. On a po- on a more positive note, <laughs> going to get too sad. Um, I guess maybe to go back a little bit, moving from Alabama to Montana, I'm sure was a huge shock for you, just in terms of everything. I mean everything, but uh, fishing wise, when you came to Montana, like what? 
how did your fishing transform and like where are you at these days in terms of like where, where can someone find you on the on the water and and what might you be doing out there okay so um i fish a lot of like small creeks um i'll go up real high and fish for cutthroats you know at least four or five times a summer um but I, I do a lot of that wandering around the Missouri on the warm water stretch, like throwing spinning gear. Um, but if somebody and I go down to the blue ribbon stretch of the Missouri in that late in the afternoon, it's only it's 45 minutes from my house and I'll blast out of here and get get there and fish like, like the last three hours of daylight, you know, if, when it's not on hoot hours. <laughs> um, and uh, so I, I always fish that every year. I roam around a lot. Um, and I still fish like uh, I like I like places that are out of the way, headwaters stuff that and I, I don't mind if they're small fish, you know. Um, I remember one time fishing on the Roan Plateau. I think the biggest fish we caught was like as long as your like not even as big as your long as your hand, you know, but it was like one of the best days I've ever had. It was, um, so but yeah, and I, I do fish a lot. Um, I, I still, you know, <laughs> and I don't I, it's like uh, we have some rivers around here that are very dewatered, um, but you can go and find like spring holes and you'll fish them when it's when it's not too hot. I, I do quit fishing when it's so hot because it, yeah, I think it kills them, you know, and we're so we're far enough away from the mountains where that's a real thing. Like like uh, the mountains are over there with their kind of cool water fisheries and, and cold water. But by the time you get out to about where I'm at, uh, it's there's trout, but uh water temperatures is a real thing yeah Every it, yeah it's, that's the thing here too i mean the, i think the colorado river there's a certain stretch of it right now that's under voluntary fishing closure and i think they're talking about maybe making a mandated fishing closure but um luckily the mountains are close enough that we can adapt to that by just going higher and higher until the water temperature isn't a problem that's it well y'all got and also the the beauty of colorado is that nine thousand ten thousand eleven thousand like like we don't have that, you know, right? Where I live, the mountains top out about nine eight. Oh, really? Yeah, you know, and um, even in Glacier, you know, a ten thousand foot peak is really rare, and so we're we've got lower elevation than Colorado, and you can you can feel it. Now, have you spent much time down here? Not really, not really. I've driven it quite a bit, and I've visited, and I've my daughter is fixing to go to Fort Collins to go to college, and so I might be getting into more, uh, seeing it more. Um, but no, I, I haven't, I, I, when I moved here, I work in Idaho. I've worked in Idaho a lot. I just did, I did a big trips in Wyoming last year, but, um, there is a, there is an aspect of the Northern Rockies, which you can, you're never going to see it all. And you sort of just get absorbed into the, into the fabric uh, because it, like I said, you're never going to see it all. It's almost overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm sure you're a map person too, just like looking yes. at maps and um, I'll spend hours a day just just looking at basins and streams and oh, what would it be yep. like to get there. And it's it's simultaneously motivating and just almost crushing yep. to think I, I would love to see this all of this, but there's no chance I'll ever see even 1% of it. So I've got to make it count when I when I go see something. But That's it. I, and I... And and you go and you see what you can, like when you have the time, like you got to work, you know, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like uh, it. And I, and that's one reason I think that I stuck with that forestry work for so long is like you just live outside. Yeah, you get out there. You do. You don't get to see a lot. Like I, I worked in the Cabinet Mountains up in northern Montana for a while and I they had hoot owl hours. You couldn't run a chainsaw afternoon because it was so dry. 
And so I hiked the cabinet mountains. That's the only time I've ever been to the cabinets, you know, and it was just, I happened to be there and I couldn't work. But a lot of this, I mean, a lot of this country you end up seeing, like for me, I saw it from a, a hoedad or behind a chainsaw, you know? Well, there's a difference between, I, I, and they're both, I don't mean to say that one's better than the other, but there's a difference between seeing a lot of different things and getting to know one place really, really well. And I still haven't decided which I prefer because um, there's something to going back to the same place over and over and over again and feeling like you know every bend in the river and every hole and every rock and really feeling like you know that place and you're intertwined with it, but also not wanting to go back to the same place to the detriment of everywhere else that is still out there to be seen. Um, so it's kind of this weird balance of, of do you want to see more or do you want to get to know it more intimately? I, I think that's a great point. I, I, I've never settled that. I've never found that balance, you know, um, I, I've uh, at times when you don't have much money and you really focus on say a 50 mile perimeter radius around where you're at, you know, then you, then you can, you get there, but you're always going to be restless to like, I'm, I am freaking out and I can't go because I'm working on this book project. I just really want to go to Alaska. I just want to go up there and fish Southeast. I've done it a couple of times. I want to do it again. And I, I, I mean, I would just like, I'm so restless about it. I just, it's just dry, it's driving me crazy. <laughs> and instead of like fishing locally and enjoying, you know, the places that I know, I, my head is in Alaska and places that I've never even been. Right. You know? But that's, that's part of the fun though. It's just fantasizing about what could be, or, you know, again, like looking yeah. at maps and planning things out. I mean, planning can be half the fun. It's an incredible luxury, isn't it? Like to have all of this that you can, that you could see. Yeah. Have you ever done so much saltwater fishing? Nope. I've I've saltwater fished I think once in my life with yeah, spin gear. I mean, I mean, I've never I haven't fly fished in saltwater like I won't do at all. And I mean, I, what would it be like to go to the Bahamas and walk down those things and catch those bonefish? You know, um, and you can yeah, or rooster fish in Southern Baja, which is another thing that I'm obsessed with that I've never done. Uh, a bucket list item. Absolutely. <laughs> to see rooster fish coming down those waves like on the East Cape. Yeah. Have you seen uh, Running Down the Man? No, tell me about that. Uh, I I haven't seen it in a long time, but um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Eastern Rises. It's a a short fly fishing film about Russia, but it's uh, made by the same guy, I think. Uh, And it's just just a short fly fishing film about rooster fishing. And uh, I I, I think they're in Baja, but you should definitely check it out. Running Down the Man. Okay. I'm going to write that down. (laughs) Yeah, if that's on your bucket list, I think you'll enjoy it. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, that's a, uh, you know, and I've fished in Baja a couple of times. I was there for other, for, for writing jobs though. Like I've never been to Baja just for fun. Um, actually I don't really go anywhere just for fun. It always, it's either an assignment (laughs) or it's like, (laughs) I would like to try that, you know? Um, Oh, you've mentioned your, uh, your book a couple of times. Um, and I did, I did promise you that I would circle back around to this if we didn't touch it but since you mentioned it i think this would be a good time um tell me about the book and the the movie that came out with patagonia because it sounds like they're pretty intertwined with each other okay yeah and um first let me go back to that alabama red-eye bass which i did a podcast with with matt lewis and he is he's the red-eye bass fly fishing king of well he wouldn't call himself that but um matt is a hell of a fly fisherman in alabama um, and he is a uh he's a geneticist I think is what he does and in fisheries. And so he's like really, really knowledgeable about these, these unique fish species in those rivers I was talking about. I wanted to make sure I got that because I was, uh, 
I, I, I plan, I hope to fish with him someday down there. Um, so to go to that project, so uh, two or three, two or three years ago, I don't know what it was, several years ago, <clears throat> um, I did a, I, I was, I, I was at, uh, I've been a public lands journalist in a way for 25 years, like, like, because so much of what happens in the West happens to do with public lands, right? Which is, I'm talking about federally managed public lands, Forest Service, BLM, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Refuges. And um, so several years ago, I drove over to cover the occupation by the Bundy group of the Malheur Wildlife Refuge in Oregon, in, outside of Burns, Oregon. And I wrote a story about that that got a lot of traffic. It was like, it was very interesting to people, which I didn't really know when I was writing it at all. Um, and so some months after that, I got contacted by these guys who became friends of mine, David Byers, and uh, he was making a movie called No Man's Land. And David had actually been embedded at the Malheur Refuge. I didn't meet him there, um, but he was making a film about the occupation of, of the wildlife refuge and what these guys wanted. They and they wanted a lot of things. They wanted to turn the refuge back over to people and have people graze it. And um, they were against any kind of protect. They hated the government and they were against protecting anything from anybody ever. Um, and they were armed and, and loud and all that. So David was making this film. He interviewed me about my time there at the refuge, talking to these folks, interviewing them. <clears throat> and it was on a, it was on a movie and that movie led David to, take on a project which came to be called public trust which was like uh the the future of our public lands because so much of what was happening at the Malheur refuge with Ammon Bundy and the militia was anti-federal government and they were anti-public lands now how you become anti-public lands meaning you, I don't I'm I'm they're pretty confused like this is before QAnon but these guys have got a lot of of theories that don't really hold up to the light of fact, you know, but anyway, they're anti-public lands. Um, and so I got, David came to me and he said, you've been doing this for 25 years. Do you want to be a part of this film? And we're going to travel all over and interview people about public lands. And I had been pitching a book project on this subject for about a year and a half at that point. And so I wasn't really getting too far with that. And uh, so we took this film on. And over the course of about two years, they made this movie. They did all that. I'm just kind of the talking head, the interviewer. Um, but I did start, I did land the book project with Patagonia Publishing, and I'm working on that book now. And, and uh, remind me the name of the movie and the book. Okay, so the book is going to, I don't know what the name of the book is. It's a very amorphous project at this point. <laughs> um, I have a, a 60, 60 volumes on the floor right here that you can't see that start with um, like the Creek Nation in Alabama and they end with the FLIPMA, which is the Federal Land Management Policy Act of 1976. <laughs> um, so I've been, in, I've, I've been kind of embroiled in this project. So the movie is called Public Trust. Um, you can see it for free on YouTube. And the, probably the, 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 the amazing thing is it has 2.5 some odd million views. Um, so this thing struck a chord and, um, I, I don't think any, I won some awards. I don't know which ones, um, we were, we released this thing during the pandemic. So and let me go back. We didn't do anything. I'm, I interview people on this movie 
David and Patagonia re, re, and Jeremy Rubing, the producer, they they made this movie and they released it during the pandemic, right? We, we released it February. Everything showed, slowed down and stopped. And so all the film festivals and all that were, were virtual. Um, but the movie did really well. People were interested in it. And I'm hoping that I can write a book now that will uh, add to the people's knowledge over what federally managed public lands mean to the United States, mean to people. Um, and I have been covering that beat a really long time. And then I was a contractor on, on Forest Service and BLM for a really long time. I still am. Um, and so maybe I have a unique perspective to offer as to somebody who hunts, fishes, works, and enjoys public land camps. You know, um, I, I hope I have something to offer. Oh, I'm um, sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Why do you think public lands have become such a talking point in the past couple of years? Because I, I hesitate to think that it's just related to the Bundy incident because a lot of people aren't even familiar with that. Um, but I feel like even bef- even after I had moved to the West and you know had started recreating on public lands, it wasn't a big talking point. It was just something you did and you know you had available to you but i feel like in the past maybe four to five years or so it's become a major thing um i don't know if it has anything to do with trump because i feel like it 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 even started kind of before that but do you have any insight on when that became such a huge conversation piece i do so um when it under clinton when they started he he made the grand staircase um escalante national monument in utah and that infuriated like the Utah politicians. Um, and so there began, did, and the Sagebrush Rebellion was clear back to the 1980s, right? And uh, and Reagan and James Watts, Secretary of Interior under Ronald Reagan, he wasn't kind of, he hated, he didn't like the idea of public lands. They don't want the federal government to own land. And so um, in the last five years, what happened was one was the Bundy thing happened, but there was also a group called, there's two groups, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is kind of a Koch brothers um, kind of right wing thing. Heritage Foundation is, and um, they write legislation for state legislatures and they are very anti-public lands. They won't, they don't think the government should, should manage public lands. They, they want the lands to be privatized and sold and have everybody make money and whatever they would do. I don't know. It's, you know, like, like they just don't, they don't believe in any kind of commons. Right. And so this is kind of confusing, but at the same time, there was a group called the American Lands Council. Um, a guy named Ken Ivory ran that in Utah. And they had this campaign call. It was, you know, it was very well publicized called free the lands, give the lands to the states and then let the land, let them either manage them or sell them. And so with the Bundys who hate the federal government and don't want, don't believe that the federal government owns land or manages land for the people, they don't believe in that concept. Um, That whole thing kind of came together in a, in a, I would not say a perfect storm at all, it simply rose to prominence amongst people who say uh, are elk hunters, <laughs> right? Are are like uh, and and amongst all the people I know who may be uh, anti-federal government, they're like, I hate the feds. Don't you hate the feds? And I'm like, well, I you know I I don't really hate the federal government. Um, it's like I'm kind of a patriot, and the government is of the people by the people. As long as it's that, I'm kind of for it. Uh, I know I have a lot of 
different nuanced opinions about all that. But I'm going like, I don't know, you know, you're saying you hate the feds and here come the American Lounge Council and they're saying we hate them too. And we're going to sell off the national forest. So what would that mean to people? And that's why it became more prominent. Um, there was, I'm not, not sure if you watch the public trust movie, we go through a bale of uh, bills, congressional bills, um, you know, legislative uh, stuff that all has to do with privatizing the, the National Forests and the Bureau of Land Management lands. Um, and so it's a real thing. And, and it's in the Republican platform that right up front that they don't believe the federal government should own land and that they should the land should be given to the states. And then at the same time, Utah was selling off uh, a lot of its state land that was granted to it by the federal government back at the time of statehood. And uh, some of the ranchers who were firebrand hated the federal government. Well, they found themselves that the state government had sold off the land that they leased that was their cattle operation. And so they were they're now caught between a rock and a hard place of like despising the state, hating the feds, but not having enough money to buy land of their own. Um, so that kind of made a twisty deal into it. And that became more prominent. Like, what do we do? Like, if you're not, if you don't have enough money to buy uh, 20,000 acres of grazing land, you know, like, and the state decides to sell off these sections that you've depended on to lease for your cows. Right. It's kind of, I mean, it's, it's kind of a weird predicament to be in to think or to be anti-public lands but also if you don't then have private land it's i don't know it's just it's a little bit easier to stomach public lands when you don't have the ability to have your own land um and it might be easier to write off public lands as unnecessary if you have you know thousands of acres of land that you you have access to yeah Um, if you were ted turner for instance although ted turner's not anti-public lands it's um this is a movement that uh the reason i started this project with the book this is a movement that i'm convinced that the people who who say they don't agree with having federally managed public lands like forest service haven't thought it out <laughs> i mean i mean i am convinced they 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 go like who do you hate and they go federal government and then nobody ever says well like okay okay um you know and the truth of it is is we have 640 million acres of public land in the united states and People depend on it for grazing, for hunting, for watershed protection. I mean, it's all, it was, it's, it's there because nobody claimed it back in the homestead days. And it's there because Teddy Roosevelt back to president Harrison set it aside so that we wouldn't wreck all the watersheds and then dry up the West. I mean, <laughs> and then the, in 1911, the, the, the Eastern forests all got started because we had logged places out to the point where they no longer, they, they don't, they, they, they collapsed into the rivers and filled up the Hudson River with sediment so you couldn't navigate it. And so they, they started setting aside like, you know, forests that kept the dirt from washing down the Hudson and stopping the shipping. Well, it's an interesting issue too. I mean, not to make it a political topic here, um, but it's, it's difficult because I feel like some people get really connected to the idea of anti-federal government and on, on, the, on the flip side, people get too connected to the idea of having the government be there to take care of everything. And I feel no. like there's sometimes this mismatch where people don't like I like my, my personal beliefs would be like, I don't need the federal government in my house, you know, making 
laws about things that I can do in my own home, in my yeah. own privacy. But I very much support the idea of them managing public lands for everybody to use. That seems right. like a very good use of that uh, broad power that no one else really has the ability to do. I mean, that's the only uh, group in this country that can really have that the ability to do that, to manage that large piece of, of a state. So um, I think that there's sometimes people get too connected with the idea of, I don't like the government in, you know, for example, messing with my private life in my own home and therefore I shouldn't support this. And it's like, it's, it's this weird thing where you kind of have to be able to separate those two things and say, I can support it in this instance, but not in this instance. And, and that's, a, that's, a, that's exactly, that's exactly right, Katie. I, I mean, that, I mean, so one of the things that I, if you're going to have a government at all, right? You, I mean, people seem to demand governance, right? Anarchy has never really worked for very long. And I don't mean like violent anarchy. I mean, just people will go, well, we don't want a government. We're all going to agree on this or whatever. It just, uh, they don't do it. So there's always governments. And, and if the government is going to do something, there's going to be a government, then I want it to do the things that I can't accomplish on my own. Right, right. That's about it. Like, you know, I, I can't really, I could get together with people and build an interstate highway. You but know, you don't but really want to. <laughs> I don't want to. And and as far as like keeping the water in the river the, so that the, the, like you don't put 10 million sheep up in the Bob Marshall wilderness until there's not a single piece of grass left and all the creeks collapse and we don't have any water down here, you know? So the government, that happened. <laughs> and the government like they set aside the Lewis and Clark National Forest and then the Bob Marshall Wilderness to protect the North and South Fork of the Sun River. And that's the water for this part of the world. You know, um, private, the private enterprise just wasn't working. Like the, they were personal, personal profit motives back there. We're going to take away the resources from all the people downstream. And so you have a government and it worked. And like you said, People seem to have a hard time separating out. I don't want them to do this, but I do need them to do this. You know, you take the baby and you chunk him out with the bathwater completely and you find yourself with nowhere to go hunting. Right. It, it becomes a side of do I like them or do I not instead of instead of what do I think that they should be involved in and what do I not think they should be involved in. And I feel like that would be a much more useful conversation uh, sure. overall in this country. Cause I feel like most people tend to agree on those things. Like most people don't want to be told what they can do in their private lives. And most people do want the government to, like you said, build an interstate. No one wants to spend their time building an interstate. Right. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, it's not a team thing. It should just be a, you know, people get elected to do a specific task and can they be kept on track to do that task and not overstep the bounds? And, and no, they can't not without eternal vigilance. You know, because power corrupts absolutely, right? I mean, we all know that. The, the government has to, we empower the government. We consent to be governed. We empower the government to do X, Y, or Z that we think it should do. And then you, and you got to watch it like a hawk, right? You have to keep it in this, it's called the narrow corridor. You have to keep it in this place. You can't let it expand out and, and just do whatever uh, some people think it should, right? Um, one of the things I have, I could get this back on this, on this to why I did this. I believe that most of the federal public lands, if people understood how, how we got them, what they do, and the freedom that they offer pe and, um, people, and the ecosystem services and resilience that they offer, I believe it won't be right or left or Republican or Democrat either. I think that we're going to actually, this, this, if people knew what I'm trying to put in my work and what's in public trust as well, that it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a political thing. Yeah, I would tend I to agree. Yeah, 
And how we manage those lands, we, we can fight over that tooth and nail. Like, like we should, right? Like, shall we log this? Shall we preserve that? Shall we have a wilderness here? Shall we have X, Y, or Z? That you have this incredible federal lands that belong to all of us. And we definitely want to argue over what to do with them, what the management should be. I'm all for arguing because, uh, you know, I mean, nothing gets done like Kim Jong-un or whatever his name is in North Korea. You know, nobody argues with him. He just he just chops you up or whatever. And and so nothing ever happens. Right. So what you want good old American like conflict, good old American compromise too, um, over, you know, nobody gets what they want. That's what you're hunting. Nobody gets exactly what they want. All but everyone the time. gets a little bit of what they want, ideally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's and so I'm not anti-conflict. <laughs> I just honestly think that, I honestly think that this will go beyond politics, and it'll be Demo- neither Democrats nor Republicans, neither right nor left. At some point, if people understood like the glories of those national forests that y'all fish in up there in Colorado, or that where I hunt here or where I can hunt, like in like the Sipsi Wilderness in Alabama. Like that's the headwaters of the Sipsi River that makes Smith Lake. Smith Lake is the cleanest lake in Alabama because its headwaters are in the Bankhead National Forest and are protected in a forest, right? It's all connected. It's all connected. And and it and it's and the other thing is is like I, I I'm I'm often freaked out by people who are so willing to just like blow stuff up that's working. You know, like this work in the National Forest is pretty good. Yeah, there's a lot of conflict, a lot of trouble, all this stuff. But it's pretty great to be able to go hiking for two weeks and fishing and hunting. And he's like, why do you want to just like burn this down? You know? <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's my soapbox. That's my current soapbox. <laughs> well, when when uh, do you hope to have the book out? I know I don't want to lock you I'd, into anything. I'd say, but... I'd say I'm a year and a half out. And uh that's that's not optimistic. That's where I'm supposed to deliver. Okay. Well, I mean, not to not to agree to anything, but um, when it comes out, I'd love to talk to you again and just kind of talk about how it went and and uh, maybe like once it gets released, kind of spread that out because I I love the idea of what you're doing and the idea of making it not not a political division thing, but just a this yeah. is a, an American thing that everyone can benefit from, and um, I think it'd be a great thing to spread out to people. So I appreciate that, and I'd, I'd love to come back. I mean, it's, this is, uh, I just think that your audience too, this is, I mean, this is a, it's not a niche audience. This is, everybody in America should be interested in this or at least paying attention to it a little bit. And the other thing about it is like, it's just, it's extremely unique. I mean, it's like, like there's just things that, that the United States of America does better. And then they just, we just do certain things better. We were the best at killing off the bison. We were the best, at restoring, <laughs> but then we were the best at restoring all these, this right. <laughs> We've been the best at a lot of good and a lot of bad things, but yeah. hopefully we can focus on the good in this case. <laughs> yeah, but this is like, this is something that we did uniquely in the world, you know? Um, I mean, the Canadians have crown land, but the P and the Australians do too, but the people don't have a lot of say in it. In America, like, we, man, this is like, this is like the, I mean, we're just wilder. We're, it's wilder people. Like, they just don't, we just don't, we're, we're arguing and, thinking and questioning and and our government doesn't just get to say we're going to do this and the people own these lands and and the government manages them in trust for us and i'm going to make a big trip i think when i get done with this like in a, in a week i'm going to try to go across the bob marshall about halfway anyway like 35 miles 
and that'll be all on Lewis and Clark National Forest, Bob Marshall Wilderness. Where else could I do that? With my with my dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's your plan? Are you going? You got any trips planned this summer? Uh, well, we've just we've just been on some, but I've got a lot of scouting to do over the next month or so. So, it's, and we've got some weddings and stuff that we have some administrative tasks we have to take care of. But gotcha. uh, once that's done, it's going to be. I'm actually going out on Wednesday to stay overnight and work late the next day to. Um, go check out a new spot for deer. So um, it's it's in the thick of things right now. Yeah. Do you um do you get an elk tag every year? I do. I don't get an elk every year, but yeah, I do I mean, get a tag every year. <laughs> right on. Well, that's cool, man. But yeah, how uh, where where can people find you if they want to reach out? Um, either check out your writing, or um, I know please plug the podcast too. We haven't even mentioned your your podcast, but. Um, so backcountry hunters and anglers, I, I, I handle the podcast for backcountry hunters and anglers. It's called, um, podcast and blast. We've got over a hundred episodes. Um, and that, that has been a, a, a pretty incredible experience for me. I didn't, I didn't, nobody planned that. And it turned out to be pretty interesting, really interesting. Um, I'm, and, uh, and you can go to my website, which is howherring.com and see like my old work, um, and, and I, I've been working on this other project now for about a year, so I don't have a lot of new stories. Um, but uh, I'm between the podcast and Blast and uh, this book project, I'm pretty, I'm not overwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just, I'm, 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 uh, I'm here a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fair enough. For now. Yeah. And, I, and I'm lucky in that, uh, well, I've got a good cow tag for East of here this year that's kind of a trip out on the Missouri breaks, but I do a lot of, I do a lot of my hunting. Um, I'm not, my elk hunting is catch as catch can. I haven't been that good successful in the last few years. Um, but I, I do a lot of wandering around hunting during hunting season. I, I'm pretty lucky in a lot of ways. It's uh, if it doesn't cost a lot of money, I'm probably doing it. <laughs> yeah. As I say, sometimes, sometimes I get uh, your catchphrase stuck in my head, just wandering around wearing out a pair of boots yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> I'm good at that. <laughs> and staring into space. <laughs> well, Hal, uh, thank you so much for coming on. This was a just just a fun chat, and um, I'm glad to hear about your book coming along. It sounds like it's going well, and I'm gonna go check out that public trust movie because that sounds like a a good way to spend my evening. Cool. Well, thanks for thanks for having me. This is cool. I'm I'm um, I was aware of your podcast, but I'm now much more so. Well, uh, you're a great addition to it, but. Thank you again, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. You bet. Thanks, Katie. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Uh, Don't forget to head over to the website, fishuntamed.com, for all episodes and show notes. And also, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. That'll get my episodes delivered straight to your phone. And also, if you have not yet, please consider going over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating or review. That's very helpful for me, and I'd greatly appreciate it. Um, Other than that, thank you guys again for listening, and I will be back in two weeks. Bye, everybody.